Father, uh, we thank you for the reminder of our adoption, that we are children of the King. And I pray, Lord, that that would stick with us uh, and we would carry that with us wherever we go. And now as we get into your word, I pray that it would mold us and shape us. Help me to speak clearly. Help me to get behind the text and allow your word, your glorious word, to come forward and change us and shape us and mold us into the image of your Son. And we pray this in his name. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, I was watching a documentary on toys. And one of the toys uh, I was most interested in hearing about was He-Man. Any of you remember He-Man? Well, uh, if you don't know, He-Man is an uh, action figure. That's what they call them. They're not dolls. They're action figures. They came out in the early 80s. Uh, and the reason uh, He-Man was created was Mattel, the giant toy maker, uh, wanted to find a toy for boys that would rival the phenomenon that is Barbie. And they had tried a couple of different ways. They had uh, uh, one that was known as Big Jim. It was a Ken-like, really the early uh, form of Ken. Uh, He wore flannel and jeans and came with a Jeep and a camper trailer, uh, but never really sold well. So these two guys at Mattel decide, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go to schools and we're going to go to playgrounds and we're going to watch 6 to 12-year-old boys play. And we're going to see if there's any themes or ideas that develop uh, as these kids play in their more natural environments. And a theme most certainly did develop, and that theme was power. Little boys love power. Little boys love to, to, uh, to pretend that they have power. This is why they're attracted to pretending they're Superman or a United States Marine or the king of the universe or whatever it is. They like to pretend and have power. They like to to use power. They like to uh, play with things that give them power. And they, most of the time, will constantly be wondering who is the most powerful guy in their group. So these guys notice this, and they go back to Mattel. And they said, all right, we got to come up with something that has to do with power. And they came up with He-Man. He-Man, if you've never seen the doll, is absurdly muscular. Uh, he is uh, muscles on top of muscles. I think He-Man has uh, muscles in places most people don't have places. Uh, but he is a very powerful figure. And the original Koi comes with a small uh, comic book that would explain He-Man's story. And the story would go that He-Man uh, was a prince, uh, a powerful prince. And whenever he went into battle, whenever he was going to fight his enemies, he had a magical sword that he would lift over his head. Does anybody know what the motto was? I'm so disappointed. (laughs) He would take his magical sword, he would lift it over his head, and he would say, I have the power. And he would transform into his battle gear, and his battle cat would get its battle gear, and he would ride his tiger into battle. Uh, And it was all about power. And this thing just flew off the shelf. So it just, these toys, uh, there were toy stores who just could not keep them in stock. So it was so uh, popular that after the first run of toys, they were already uh, making a cartoon that ended up being rather successful. And then by the late 80s, made an absolutely incredibly awful movie. But the thing is, is He-Man became, it began to rival Barbie. 
as far as sales and and popularity. And it didn't matter that many of the characters, the names, were absolutely ridiculous. One of the people that He-Man would fight was called Many Faces Man. Take a guess at what he was. He was a man with many faces, but he had power. They're, they're credited with developing one of the greatest villains in comic book lore of all time. Anybody know who he is? Or I probably shouldn't ask now. Skeletor, who had the other half of He-Man's magical sword, and he too had power. And this was just a, a whole fantasy world all based upon power. It didn't matter how weird it got. didn't matter how silly the names were. It was popular as long as it was about power. And they sold millions and millions and millions of dollars of He-Man stuff. This morning, we return to our study in the book of Matthew. It's our typically our fall study. I know it's not fall. I don't want to talk about fall and scare you. Uh, but but uh, we have a lot going on as a church the next couple of months, so I have to get started a little early. Uh, last year, at the end of our study, we got to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Uh, And the people said at the conclusion of chapter 7 that Jesus was one who taught with authority. And so after the end of the Sermon on the Mount and after this declaration of authority, starting in chapter 8, Matthew is going to give us a set of nine different stories. So sets of three, nine stories total over chapters 8 and 9. He's going to give us nine stories divided up into categories of three that are all going to be about the power of Jesus. Our text this morning that we read is the first set of three. And Matthew does the work, or some of the work for us in verse 17 tells us why he chose these three stories. Certainly Jesus had many more interactions, but why does Matthew tell us about these three? And he tells us because he's submitting these things as evidence that this Jesus is the Savior, the one promised by God by the prophet Isaiah. And so these stories are meant to introduce us not just to Jesus' power, but to the Savior himself. And so I have three points for you this morning. Number one. Things we need to learn about our Savior. So, number one, Jesus is the Savior that restores. Jesus is the Savior that restores. I want you to, the first thing I want to point out to you in our text is that in each one of these stories, Matthew begins by giving us a geographical location. These are rather important to understanding and interpreting what's going on here. So, starting in verse 1. uh, Matthew tells us that Jesus is on his way from the mountain. He's coming down off the mountain. He's just finished the sermon on the mount. He's making his way down. The idea there would be that Jesus is currently in the wilderness. So anything outside of the city, anything that is not in a city, is considered the wilderness. So if if you're in the wilderness, according to, to biblical themes and ideas, you are exposed Meaning, if you're in the wilderness, you're exposed to the dangers of nature, like lions and vipers. We know the story of Samson. As he was going from one city to another, he was attacked by a lion. Uh, And so being in the wilderness, the children of Israel were in the wilderness and were attacked by snakes. So the Bible has the idea of being in the wilderness as being exposed. Not only that, you have no protection. So if you run into a robber, if you run into a, a, a raiding band, uh, that they're sneaking across the border to, to try and raid. 
you have no protection. And then lastly, to be in the wilderness means you have a, a, a likelihood of encountering somebody who is living outside of social norms. This is absolutely positively the place you would run into a leper, which you in most cases didn't want to do because leprosy was incredibly contagious. If you got leprosy, you were not allowed to go to the place of worship. You were not allowed to live in the city. You were not allowed to live in a home with your family. If you gained leprosy, you were in every way an outsider. And outsiders always live in the wilderness. And so we have a moment here where Jesus is in the wilderness and is being approached by an outsider. But there's something else I want you to notice here in the text is that Matthew clearly is intending to get us to think about Moses. Moses' first miracle had to do with leprosy. Moses is the guy who gave the law that, that required this man to be in the wilderness. We know Moses was the one who led the children of Israel through the wilderness. But Moses didn't lead the children of, uh, children of God out of the wilderness. Moses didn't go to the promised land. Moses didn't lead them into the promised land. Moses came up short. So this outsider, go back to the text, this outsider comes and says to Jesus, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And so understand the the weight of that moment. He's saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can bring me back inside. Lord, if you are willing, you can take me out of the wilderness. He's acknowledging that Jesus has the power and authority that Moses did not have. Jesus has the power and authority. He is one that is greater than Moses. Jesus responds with compassion, touches the man, declares that he is willing, makes the man clean, commands him to go back to the temple, show himself to the priest, give the offering that is required as evidence or testimony that God has made him clean, that God has brought him out of the wilderness. Perhaps one of the biggest things in Scripture, if we think about it, is the restoration of something lost. We go to Adam and Eve in the garden, and when they sinned, they were sent out of the garden into the wilderness. And then the narrative of the Bible is all about God's forming and shaping history for the purpose of bringing his people from the wilderness back in to the garden. And we get story after story of men and women who fail, who who fail to find restoration or lead others into restoration. So constantly coming up short, including Moses. But then we come to Jesus, and what Matthew's presenting here is that Jesus doesn't come up short. Those who trust in Jesus are restored. Now, for most people you're going to encounter, there are two struggles with this. The first one is to even acknowledge that we need to be restored. A lot of people struggle with this. In Jesus' day, it was primarily the religious, the, the, the leadership that thought they didn't need it. And First John and Jesus make very clear... That a person who says, I have no need of restoration, or a person who says, I have no need to be restored, is somebody who doesn't know the truth. Somebody who says, I don't need to be restored, is somebody who, uh, who is still blind and still deaf, is considered to still be lost. Because First John says, if you say you have no sin, if you say you don't need restoration, you don't know 
the truth. But the second struggle, the second struggle is to believe that we can be restored. Most of us are quite aware of the fact that we have sin habits we can't break. Gossip. Tempers. Lying. Maybe addictions to things like pornography. And most of us have things, or many of us, I should say, have things that we'd be absolutely terrified if other people found out about them. Most of us are aware of the, are embarrassed or ashamed of things that have happened to us. Embarrassed and ashamed of things that happened because of us. Embarrassed and ashamed because of things that have happened around us. Many of us are quite aware that we are outsiders. We're dirty and we feel alone. But unfortunately, there are also those who would be willing to hold on to their shame, willing to try and find some other way to be restored than the restoration that Jesus offers. And the reality that we have a Savior that restores has quite a significant impact in a culture like ours. We live in what is considered a cancel culture. We had a presidential candidate, not to rehash anything, but four years ago, three years ago, declared whole segments of the population irredeemable. The culture is picking up on that idea. There are great... uh, uh, Great ideas, and not great in the sense they're good, but there's a lot of people out there who believe that, that people can get to a place where they can't be restored. Our culture looks out and says, this person has become irredeemable. This person is somebody who can't be uh, saved. And so we get boycotts and we demand things be canceled and we tell people they need to be deplatformed and we say they just can't be restored. Yet we have a Savior, we have a book, we have a message, we have the gospel, we have a joyful message that says, He is willing, you can be restored. The two ideas don't go together. As Christian people, we can never accept the idea that there is some or a person who can't be restored. We should never buy into this cultural movement of irredeemability. So then the question for us as Christians is this. Do we want people to know they can be restored? Do we want to take advantage of the evangelistic opportunity we have in front of us in a culture that says people, certain people can't be redeemed? We can come along and say, no, in fact, they can because Jesus can restore. It doesn't matter how far you're into the wilderness. He can bring you back into the garden. Why wouldn't we want every drug abuser, every promiscuous teenager, every difficult boss to know that Jesus Christ is the Savior that restores. The second thing we're going to learn about our Savior this morning, number two, that Jesus is the one Savior of the world. He is the one Savior of the world. Notice in verse 5, we get a new location. So he starts the next story by telling us that Jesus is inside the city of Capernaum. Now, we live in rural Nebraska. 
And most people who live in rural places don't typically have great feelings about the city. I've even heard since I've lived in Nebraska, people say, you know what's wrong with the state of Nebraska? The city of Omaha. We don't really care for the city. But the Bible presents the city both positively and negatively. The city represents tension in Scripture. Because on the positive side, if you're inside the city, you're not in the wilderness. If you're not in the wilderness, it's the idea of safety. A place of safety means a place of stability, which means you get markets, you get uh, jobs and families and homes. When enough people live together in the same place, typically you can accomplish bigger goals. This is why we have high-rises, not in downtown Maxwell, but in New York City. When you get a group of people together, if you want to believe it or not, almost every advancement in technology, architecture, and education has come out of the city. Art is found and perfected. Your, your clothes, the designer clothes, the, the, the movies, TV, every form of art you can think of, almost all of it comes out of the city. All the good, all the beauty. We get tremendous pictures of beauty coming out of the city. The tension, though, is that in the city you get the image of God and all the things that come with it, but you also get a concentrated center of sinfulness. That's the tension of the city. Now in Capernaum, we find out in this text that that tension mostly took place in a problem between two groups of people, Romans and Jews. And both groups thought that the tension or the city would be better off without the other one. For example, the the Romans... Tell me if you've heard this story before. The Romans thought themselves the modern people because they were modern, had modern ideas, and had modern things inside their modern cities, that their culture was superior. The Romans believed that if every city was like them and like Rome, some little form of Rome, the world would be a better place. They had a pretty solid argument. They controlled most of the world. The other group in the city were the Jews. The Jews looked at the world and thought themselves morally superior, that they had a morally superior culture. While the Romans thought that the world would be a better place if everybody was like them, the Jews thought that the world would be a better place if it was only them. Have you heard this story before? So we get this account. That's the tension in this account. So we have this Roman soldier coming to Jesus and acknowledging Jesus' authority and power. And we have this Jew, Jesus, saving the life of a Roman servant. This moment is an absolute rejection of the vainglory of both groups. And then after healing the, the servant with his word, he turns to the crowd and he says, many people, From the east and the west will come into the kingdom. And those who think themselves so morally superior, those for whom even the kingdom had been prepared, are going to find themselves on the outside. And they're going to see a kingdom full of people they never expected to be there. 
This is a, an offensive moment. It would be like saying, look, this pastor, so-and-so, who spent his whole life preaching in the church and working in the church, but secretly thought himself morally superior, thought himself a shoe-in for heaven. That pastor is going to die and wake up in hell and see heaven filled with people he thought he was better than. It's, it's, it's a, just a shocking moment. And what, but, but what Matthew's doing here is he's pre- presenting Jesus as the one door by which people can have a re- right relationship with God. That Jesus is the one door by which a person goes through to find their sins forgiven. He's the one door by which a person can go through and find of what it means to be human, to find out what it means to be what God created them to be. But Matthew is also presenting Jesus as an open door. The surprise of this passage is a non-Jew having faith in Jesus, the Savior, granting the petition of that faith. For the people of the, the religious people of Jesus today, this was not considered possible. To even consider getting close to God, the idea would be you'd have to become in every way Jewish. You would have to be circumcised and, and change your diet and even perhaps move out of the neighborhood you lived in. But, but Jesus doesn't require any of it. I was trying to explain this to the teens at youth group on Wednesday night using a passage out of Mark. There, uh, some parents bring their little children to be blessed and prayed over by Jesus. But the disciples put up barriers. They put up barriers to get these parents, and they rebuke these parents for even thinking that such a thing was possible or even acceptable. Jesus gets angry with his disciples and uses the moment to teach them something. That God's kingdom is going to be filled with all those who were considered unacceptable. And that the way you get into the kingdom is not by becoming acceptable, it's by going to Jesus. It's contrasted by Mark in the very next passage as we get the rich young ruler who shows up and tries to get into the kingdom by earning it. And then the challenge to us as Christians this morning is this, can we see people through this lens? How often do you look at somebody and think, they would just put down the booze. Maybe if they stopped living together. Maybe if they took care of their lawn. Perhaps if they were just a little bit more friendly, then maybe they could become a Christian. How many times have you looked at a rowdy young boy and thought to yourself, if only his parents would discipline him, then maybe he'd be a Christian. We're right as a church. I want you to understand this. We are absolutely positively right as a church to declare to the neighborhood around us, to the people around us, that Jesus is the only way. But we better follow that up with the fact that he is the open way. That by his word, anyone can be saved. Then number three, the last thing we are introduced to about Jesus, our Savior, is number three, Jesus is the Savior with compassion. He is the Savior with compassion. Verse 14, we get our third and final geographical location, Peter's home. It's the most intimate of the three settings. There's no crowd here. No request is made. The passage is before this, people came to Jesus and asked him for things. 
And we see after this passage, more people show up and ask Jesus for things. But in this simple moment, all the text tells us is that Jesus enters into Peter's house. He sees Peter's mother-in-law laying there sick with a fever. And Jesus touches her hand. The fever leaves. And she more or less goes back to doing what she would have normally done in the course of her day, taking care of the guests in her home. Matthew goes from two very dramatic situations in the text to one very non-dramatic situation, but very intimate. And the point is pretty clear. That the compassion of Jesus, the power of Jesus, extends into every corner of life. There's no more intimate space than one's home. When I was younger, and I mean younger like when I was a kid... My, uh, my mom had to sell our home to my aunt and uncle. For a short period of time, the two families had to live together uh, because the home we were supposed to move into just wasn't ready. It was a pretty big house. I think it was 14, 15 people living in this house. It was actually three stories. That's why my mom had to sell it. There were only two or three of us left at home. Uh, so 14, 15 people had plenty of space. So space wasn't the issue. But things still got really rough. And they got really personal. You see, the problem was, is that you had one family, including me. This is the only home they'd ever known. And we're trying to just live the way they always had lived. To to watch the TV shows that they had always watched. To, you know, go to bed when they'd always gone to bed. Get up when they've always gone to bed. Have ice cream when they've always had ice cream. And then you have another family trying to get used to living there. Them trying to do and settle for the long term. So they're trying to watch what they want to watch, go to bed when they go to bed, get up when they go to, uh, get up and eat ice cream when they eat ice cream. It wasn't going well. Now a problem like this, like whether or not you eat ice cream at 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, is not nearly as dramatic as facing cancer, is it? It's not nearly as dramatic as having to deal with the loss of a loved one. It's not nearly as difficult as asking the question, how am I going to pay my bills? But it is personal. And it is important. And what Matthew's showing us here is that Jesus has this majestic and this awesome power. He has this power to to restore. He has this power to, to save the lost and save the world. He is this awesome, very incredible, very different than us person. But he's also showing us that this awesome God is is very close and full of compassion. The text ends, our text ends by telling us that Jesus ministered to all those who were brought to him. And Matthew telling us this is the kind of savior that we're to be looking for. The one who gets close enough. To know and to take and to bear our problems. And the point is clearly that Jesus' compassion, his sufficiency, his power extends into every kind of situation. That there's no temporal care that is too small for the compassion and sufficiency of Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Are you trying to potty train a toddler? Ever done that? Ever spoken the words, help me, Lord? Do you ever think that those kind of things aren't big enough to pray about? 
Ever think that your relationship with God through Christ is just for the big things? It's not true. Have you ever done something like pray for creativity? I do it all the time. I ask the Lord for creativity when it comes to playing with my kids, because I'm rather boring. I ask for creativity because I love cooking, so I want to be creative in my cooking. And every single week, I pray for creativity in my preaching. And some of you are like, Pastor, you should pray some more. (laughs) Ever prayed for sleep? One of the things I do in my walk with the Lord is from time to time, I make sure that I stop. And I ask myself the question, what am I thinking about that I'm not praying for? What's occupying my mind that isn't on my prayer list? It might be as simple as organizing a room or a simple administration decision I need to make. But I don't ever want to think that my relationship with him has areas that are just too small. And I would suggest to you that if you're limited in your thinking of the length and breadth of Jesus' compassion and sufficiency, you are going to be limited in your thinking about compassion for others. There is most certainly a a, a connection between thinking that God doesn't want to hear about your struggle finding a good pair of pants and thinking and not being compassionate when it comes to somebody who might need a ride to get their car from the shop there's a direct connection between what you think about God's compassion for you and the kind of compassion you have for others and of course Jesus points this very thing out when it comes to the gospel When we realize that the God who has every right to judge us and every right to condemn us is the same God who provides the salvation that delivers us from that judgment simply because he is loving and kind, it should have a radical impact on the way we treat others. So Jesus is the Savior with intimate and personal compassion for us. He's got a love and a mercy that stretches into every corner of your life. Jesus is the one who is the savior of the whole world. That the only door is an open door. That there'll be many in heaven that we never expected to see there. And Jesus is the savior who restores. He's the one who takes out of the wilderness and brings them into the city taking outsiders and making them, adopting them, as we heard this morning, into children of God. And he is a Savior who can do all of these things because he has the majestic and awesome power to do so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder of the power of Christ and what kind of Savior he is, one who restores, who has the power to save the whole world, and is compassionate to the smallest details of our lives. And I pray, Father, we would draw ourselves close to this Savior, lift our voices in worship and praise to this Savior. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.